Well, this morning, we are getting back into the book of Romans. And so take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. And we've been walking through the book for some time now, and we've been looking now in Romans chapter 12 at this section, starting in verse 14, that goes down through verse 21, and we've been calling these the Christian distinctives. The Christian distinctives. Now, I don't, I don't know if you remember elementary school. I do. If you're like me, elementary school... Recess was challenging. Uh, Those days were filled with either just absolute elation or absolute devastation. And the reason for that is that all the kids would go out on the playground and play sports. They play soccer, football, other sports. And the way you started that was by picking teams. Remember picking teams? This is childhood torture. There were always two captains, right? Two captains, and then each captain would pick teams, and the best players were chosen first, and down through the lineup it would go. And your social status depended on how early you got picked. Uh, one week you get picked early, and you thought, man, this is great, and then you drop a pass or you miss a route, and the next week you get picked late, right? And the whole social life of the school was built around recess team picking. It was basically torture. (laughs) I don't know if you remember that, but that hierarchy, those cliques, that sort of inner ring exists everywhere, doesn't it? It actually exists everywhere around us all the time. Hierarchy and the inner ring is in our workplaces. It's in politics. It's even among the neighbors on our street. Uh, There's the inner circle of people, the hierarchy. It's in families. It's even in friend groups. There's this structural hierarchy that exists among people. The danger of cliques like these is that they destroy love. They destroy love. They're built on the back of hierarchy. C.S. Lewis said this in his famous lecture called The Inner Ring. He said, I believe that in all men's lives at certain periods, and in many men's lives at all periods, between infancy and extreme old age, one of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside the inner ring and the terror of being left outside. I think that's true. I think if we're honest, that's true. But if there's anywhere in the world that this should not be, it's in the church, isn't it? The church of Jesus Christ should not be a place where hierarchies exist. And this is a Christian distinctive. And this morning we're going to look at Romans 12, 16. And in verse 16, he gives us four phrases that should put this to death. I've titled the sermon, The Social Life of Christians, Part 1. And what we're going to do is look at the first three of these phrases this week. And then next week we'll look at the last because it's very profound. Look what he says in Romans 12, 16. It says, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in your mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. So we want to pick those apart one at a time. And the first one, the first thing we want to look at is point one, commanding minds. Commanding minds. Now, if you, if you read this sentence in Greek, it's actually, there's a repetition, repeated word, there's repetition in it. And you might not see it initially, but it's the word mind. The word mind. Look at the phrase again. Look at verse 16. He says, be of the same mind toward one another. You see it there in the first place. And then he says, do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. And then the third time it's used is, do not be wise in your own estimation. Literally in Greek, it is, do not be in your own mind. Uh, That's what he's saying. He's talking about our minds. And Paul is commanding the way that we think. 
Last week we looked at how Paul commands the way that we feel, and here Paul is commanding how we think. He wants us to think in certain ways. And the goal of this verse is to change our thinking. He wants us to think rightly about other people. And what Paul knows is that if we think rightly about ourselves and about others, we will act in a right way toward them. The mind governs the life, doesn't it? If we think rightly about things, we will then act rightly about those things. I want to be careful here and cautious. I'm not saying that if you think something, your emotions will follow. That's not what I'm saying. I want to be very careful. That's not the point. What Paul is saying is that our thinking needs to be in line with where our hearts ought to be. And when those things happen, what will come out of our lives is activity that is righteous. Love in the heart changes the mind so that the life changes. That's what happens. So how does love change our minds? How does love change our minds? And Paul gives us this picture of a changed mind, how love can change us from the inside out. And this uh, is point two on your outline, thinking of the church. Now, as I said, we're going to look at the first three phrases here, and all of these apply within the church. And we know that because he says, one another, be of the same mind toward one another. These are all dealing with the church and how the church should think about itself, how we should think about one another here at FPC. And I want to break these things down for you. So the first one is in point A, equality, equality. Paul starts with an interesting phrase. He says, be of the same mind toward one another, be of the same mind toward one another. Now, this phrase actually exists in various forms all over the New Testament. It's actually a very interesting phrase. It exists in a number of different places. It's used in Philippians 2.2. Chris, Chris read Philippians 2 for us this morning. And in Philippians 2.2, Paul says, be of the same mind. He literally says, be of the same mind. Have one mind. It's also used in 2 Corinthians 13.11, where Paul says literally, be like-minded. Have minds that are alike. And in fact, it's actually used in Romans 15.5, just later in the chapter in the book here. And Paul says that we should be of the same mind with one another. However, there's a little grammatical difference in this phrase in Romans 12 than there is in Romans 15 and in all those other phrases. Paul is not saying be of the same mind with one another. He doesn't say that, right? Look at the verse. He says, be of the same mind toward one another. In those other verses, Paul is calling churches to agree theologically. He's calling, to, calling them to theological unity, doctrinal unity. And he knows that if there's doctrinal unity, then there will be unity among people. But here, Paul is not talking about that. He's talking about how we ought to think toward each other. And what he says is that we ought to have the same thoughts toward everyone. What does that mean? The same thoughts toward everyone. In the church, as Christians, we should think of everyone as equal. Everyone is equal. What does that mean? It means there shouldn't be any hierarchy. There shouldn't be anyone who is a favorite, right? There shouldn't be anyone who we think less of in the church. We should have the same thoughts toward everybody. In fact, we are supposed to see everyone as equals. We're supposed to have the same mind toward everybody in the church. There should be no distinction. All of us should think the same things about everyone else in the church. We should have the same thoughts about everyone. Now, of course, the responsibility to do this is on us, right? It's our responsibility to do this. All of us individually are responsible to think this way. If someone else isn't thinking of us as equals, they don't 
think of us as an equal. They might look down on us or look up to us. That's not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to think of everyone the same, to not have anyone who we think more highly of or less highly of, to not have anyone who we value more or value less. As Christians, we ought to have the same mind toward everyone. There should be no variation in how we think of anyone in the church. Of course, we can be prone to partiality, can't we? As, as just people, we're prone to partiality. We think more highly of one person than we do another. Our personalities fit or clash. There can even be like subtle forms of different things in our hearts like racism or classism, and we can think different thoughts about different people. And Paul says, don't do that. Think of everybody the same. Everyone is the same. All of us are the same in Christ. Paul even says in Galatians 3.28 that there is no Jew nor Greek. What, what does that eliminate? It eliminates all race barriers. And he says there, are, there is no slave nor free man. What does that do? It erases classism. And he even says there should be no male or female. He doesn't say there's no such thing as gender. He says when you think of people in Christ, we are all the same. Jesus takes our playing field and levels it completely, doesn't he? There should be no hierarchy. We ought to think with equality toward one another. What's the second thing that he says? And this is point B on your outline, humility, humility. Look what he says. He says, do not be haughty in mind. We don't use the word haughty very often. Uh, that's a word that is an older word. But what does it mean? It just means don't think highly of yourself. Don't have high thoughts of yourself. It's, it's having a high view of my spiritual stock, right? I've been a Christian for quite a while. I'm a pastor. <sighs> Pretty good. And Paul says, don't think highly of yourself. Don't be haughty about who you are. Don't think that way. Thinking of ourselves as some kind of upper echelon to the spiritual people around me. Now, what's interesting is that Paul actually says that exact same phrase in Romans 12, 3. Look what he says there. He says, for I say, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. But in Romans 12, 3, he's talking about spiritual gifts, He's talking about how we function in the body of Christ, that we don't have hierarchy in terms of spiritual gifts. Teachers are more valuable than servants, and servants are more valuable than teachers. Everyone's the same in our spiritual gift. And here he's talking about how we view one another, that we are the same, that all of us are the same. We ought to relate to one another in equality and through humility of mind in ourselves. Do we think of ourselves as more important or more qualified or more spiritual than other people? That's the question. Do we think of ourselves that way? And Paul, in the next phrase, says, if you look there in 16, he says, associate with the lowly. Now, we're going to come to that, but what does pride do in the heart? What does it do in the heart? When we're thinking highly of ourselves, what happens inside of us? What do we start to do? Well, we start to sort of separate from those who are beneath us, don't we? It, it makes us sort of separate ourselves from people. We start to move backwards and we say, well, that person does that and they're different than me. And we start to move away from people instead of coming toward them. Maybe you've been in a church like this where everyone at the church has a certain level of spiritual stock, so to speak. We might say street cred, right? Everyone has this spiritual sort of money and they all sort of carry it around. You can tell where everyone ranks in the church. You can feel where everyone is, can't you? There's the head pastor, he's like some kind of all-star, not me, <laughs> especially if it's a big church or if he's a well-known guy or he's a published author, he's sort of a famous one, right? And then you have the elders and deacons and everyone sort of wants to be with them and there's this sort of structural 
hierarchy inside of that. Then there's those spiritually minded guys who aren't elders, you know, but they're still spiritually minded and they're usually the slightly cool and rebellious types, right? They're on the inside, but too cool for the office. And the list goes on and on. And you can tell where people rank, can't you? You can feel where they rank. You can often tell by their clothing even. You know, the, the ones who are up high, they, they walk around wearing a suit and they have a little entourage of people that run behind them, you know, and that's, that's this hierarchy that exists. Paul says, get rid of all of that. Repudiate all of that. Hate that. That's a terrible thing. That's trash, Paul says. We can't allow ourselves to slip into that model. Why? Because we're all the same. What are we? We're redeemed sinners. Every single one of us has sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Every single one of us should have gone to hell. And when we're thinking of each other as equals and when we're thinking of ourselves rightly and not being haughty in our minds, there's no such thing as all-stars. There's no higher-ups. There's no first-class people. We're all equal. All of us are equal as redeemed sinners. And that's what heaven is, isn't it? This is what heaven is like. In heaven, no one's looking around to see if they're standing by the cool kids. We're all worshiping Christ, and as we worship Christ, all distinctions are eliminated. We're all the same. So we need to not think of ourselves as above or below, but to remember that everyone is our equal in terms of our position with God. So we need to have equality in our minds, and we need to have humility in our minds when we think of others. And the third is point C, we need maturity. Look what Paul says again in verse 16. He says, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Associate with the lowly. Now, this is a little tricky phrase because Paul could be talking about lowly people or lowly things. If he's talking about lowly things, what he's saying is don't, don't think of any task that's below you. But this whole section is about people, and so I don't think that's what he's saying. He's talking about people. He's, he's talking about us associating with other people. And he says specifically about those who are lowly. The point here is that we're supposed to be open to seeing everyone as equals, and because everyone is an equal, then we look for people who don't feel like they're equals. Each one of us is supposed to be looking for those people that look like they're a bit on the outside, a bit left behind. We're supposed to be looking for them and reaching out to them and associating with them. Why? Why? Because we know they're hurting. And we want to go to them and care for them and bring them in. This is Christian maturity. I think this is actually one of the first and truest measures of Christian maturity, to not isolate yourself and hive yourself off and say, well, here I am, here's my friends. No, but to have eyes that look up and look outward and look for those who are lowly and who need us. Truly mature Christians have stopped caring about their spiritual stock. They don't care anymore. It doesn't matter what anyone thinks about me, I'm thinking about other people. And so I'm going to go look for people who are lowly, who need help. They're considering others as more important than themselves. And that's Paul's point in Philippians 2, isn't it? Philippians 2.3, he says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Humility of mind, same idea. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Look at each other as more important. In other words, what's he saying? Everyone is to be more important than me. And the one who's on the outside is more important than me, and they need help. And so I'm going to go to them and seek them and bring them close because what they really need is to be connected to the body of Christ. That will help them the most 
for them to be close. In fact, the one who is on the outside is much more important than the one who's on the inside because they're the ones who are the most in need. So true maturity has put away the playground issues. They stopped worrying about whether they got picked first or fifth. Instead, they're deciding to look for others who aren't picked and reach out to them and care for them and seek them out. This is true maturity. When we have love in our hearts, that's what comes out of us. That's what comes out of us. A desire to reach out, to know, to care for other people and not worry about who's caring for me. What's interesting about humility is that this is even dangerous, isn't it? This is even dangerous. What can we do with this? We can start to think of people as a project. We can think to ourselves, you know, I'm mature. I should start looking for people who are lowly, and I will start to reach out to them, right? And then we start to do that, and what can happen? We, we begin to condescend to talk with them. You know, I'm trading some of my spiritual credit here, and I'm going to talk to those people. We patronize them with our presence, and then as we're talking to them, we look around in hopes that other people are watching us do this good deed. And what are we doing? We're doing the exact same thing, actually. Just another form of pride, but clothed in the garment of humility. But true maturity has that eye for the lowly all the time. They have that eye for the lowly all the time. They, they want to connect people to the body of Christ because they love them and they know they need it. So in these three statements, Paul describes how, as Christians, we ought to think of one another. This is fascinating. It, it actually sums up everything in the church. This is how our thinking should always be about each other. We should think of ourselves as equals. We should not think proudly of ourselves, and we ought to look out for those who aren't connected and draw them in so that they're tied closer to the body of Christ. We ought to associate with the lowly. This is our responsibility as Christians. This is what we ought to be. This is the social life of Christians. Now, how do you do that? Because here's the problem. We all, all of us, myself included, we all have these tendencies in our hearts where we worry about what other people might think of us, don't we? We do. If we're honest, all of us do. We're concerned that someone might see us in a bad light or we rehearse conversations in our mind and think, I hope I said that right. Or, you know, we wrestle through these things in our minds and hearts and it's difficult to do this. So how do we move from thinking about us to thinking about others? How do we change that so that our hearts move that direction? And the answer, of course, is through Christ. It's through Christ. But I want to look at how that happens specifically. And this is point three, thinking like Jesus. And this is why it's tricky. All of us have evil motives, don't we? We can have evil motives for why we're doing what we're doing. And it's just, we can be unwilling to acknowledge that those motives are evil, this always happens when we're dealing with spiritual pride. You know, you've, maybe you've heard someone say this, but sometimes people say, well, I'm working on being more humble. What's wrong with that sentence? There's a lot that's wrong with that sentence. Why? Because if you succeed in working on being more humble, what will you be? I'm proud of yourself. And if you fail in working on being more humble, what will you be? despairing about yourself, right? And either way, what are you doing? You're thinking about yourself. And so working to be more humble doesn't work. So what we need to do is to think like Jesus. So we're going to look at two things. I want to look at how he thinks of others, 
And then we could consider how his power helps us to change. This is point A, our example. Turn over to Philippians chapter 2. As I said, Chris read it for us. As you're turning there, we know the humility of Jesus, don't we? Jesus was the most profoundly humble person that has ever walked the earth. He said in Mark 10, 45, even the Son of Man, the, David, the, Dan, the Dan, Daniel's king of the nations, he did not come to serve, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And in Matthew eleven thirty, 30, what does he say? He says, come to me because I'm what? I'm gentle and lowly of heart. Jesus was humble. He wasn't about self-aggrandizement or self-improvement or self-exaltation. He was the exact opposite of those things. And Paul describes this for us in Philippians 2. Verses 3 through 9. So I want to look there. Look at Philippians 2, 3. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Don't, don't do that as you're thinking. Don't think selfish or empty conceited thoughts, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. That's really exactly what he just said in Romans 12, 16, isn't it? It's the exact same idea. And then he says, verse 4, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So that thinking now will cause you to look at other people's interests and care for them and serve them. And then he uses Jesus as, as an example. This is amazing. This text gets diced up so much because it deals with an incredibly important doctrine called the kenosis doctrine. And, and it's incredibly important text in the Bible, but Paul didn't write it for that. Paul wrote this text as an example for us about how we ought to think of one another. This text is written, this kenosis text is written so that we would have this attitude, the attitude of Christ toward each other. Look at verse 5. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So what is Jesus' attitude? How did he think? Look at verse 6. It says, Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now that, that language is very rich. That word grasped, what, is, what does that word mean? It's an interesting word. It, it, it has as its root the idea of grabbing onto something that isn't yours. Robbing somebody of something. Taking something. It's rapaciousness, it's this desire after something and trying to grab onto it. And what Paul says is Jesus didn't require, regard equality with God as something to be grabbed after. What's he saying? He's saying Jesus wasn't looking for any social advancement, he was God. He didn't, there's no higher you can go. And he says he wasn't grabbing after anything. In fact, what did Jesus do? He didn't grab for something, he let go of something, didn't he? He let go of something. Verse 7, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. What did he do? The creator became part of the creation. The artist went into the painting. The one who made everything became a man. That's insanity. Why would he do that? Why would he do such an amazingly humble thing? And he didn't just become a man. If it were my choice and someone said, well, John, you created the world, but we're going to put you into the world, I would say, okay, that's fine, but I want to be the king of the world. But what does Jesus do? He takes on the form of a bondservant. See that? A slave. And it says, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus went all the way to the bottom and died the death of a slave. He died the death of a slave. Just think about how profound this is. He, he wasn't thinking about what people think. He wasn't concerned that someone might see him and think less of him. 
There was never a moment when Jesus thought about himself in that sense at all. He was always doing this as an example for us. He went as low as he could go and died a death fit for a slave. And that is the example that we've been given to follow. Isn't that amazing? Look back up in Philippians 2.3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Verse 4, do not merely look out for your own personal interests. Verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ. This is our example for us. To think of each other with perfect equality, to not be haughty in mind, to look out for the lowly. This is what we ought to be as Christians. This is how we should think. We should reject self-exaltation. We should refuse to play into social expectations. We should refuse to fear people's approval, and, and we should begin to think actively about others, to think of others as more important than ourselves. So how do we do this? How do we do this? Because that's impossible to think like Christ, isn't it? The answer is in point B, our power. Ultimately, this is impossible apart from Christ. So how does Christ give us power to think rightly about everyone else? What does Jesus do that fixes this problem? The answer is he comes inside of us, (laughs) doesn't he? Jesus comes and dwells inside of us. Jesus comes and gives us his mind, Paul says. We have the mind of Christ so that we can now begin to think rightly about other people. But practically, how does this work? How does that power, how do we access that power of Christ in us to change our thinking? And the answer is through worship. The answer is through worship. The deepest problem with our hearts, the thing that makes us proud, the thing that makes us think of ourselves, what is that? What's happening inside of us? At the end of the day, what are we actually worshiping? We're worshiping ourselves, aren't we? Ultimately, when we refuse to associate with the lowly, we are actually worshiping ourselves. We are putting ourselves above others, and we are giving homage to ourselves, to our position, to our pride, to our place. We've set up little idols of ourselves in our heart, and we're just offering as sacrifices our brothers and sisters in Christ to this idol. This little idol of self-exaltation, and it is a hungry idol. So how can we change that? How can we stop thinking those kinds of thoughts? And the answer is we have to worship Jesus. We have to replace that worship of the self that causes us to look down on others with the worship of Christ. We have to worship Christ from the heart. The only way, the only way for us to change is to worship Christ. We can't change by trying to not worship self Because the minute we do, we'll succeed, and then we'll think, aren't I good? And we're worshiping ourselves again. The only way to fix this is to worship Jesus Christ. And the only way for our hearts to worship Christ is to see how profoundly he loves us. We have to see how much he loves us. I, I need to see how profoundly Jesus loves me. And I see that reality where? At the cross. That's where I see it. I see the reality of his love for me when I look at his death for me. The only perfect person who ever lived, the only perfect person who ever lived, think of that, was crucified for me. If every other person in this room was perfect and none of you had ever sinned and I was the only sinner here, Jesus would have had to die for me. 
The second member of the Trinity came into the world and died for my sins. And they were my sins of pride and selfishness and self-exaltation and self-aggrandizement. Jesus died for my sins. So how do I stop thinking that way? Well, the first thing I have to do is go to the cross and say, Lord, this is who I am. I am a proud, unrighteous, evil sinner. I love myself and I want worship from other people. That's who I really am. And I have been willing to step on the head of your son for my honor. We talk about sin and we think there's lots of sins in the world, aren't there? When we think of sin, we usually think of sin as externals. But the most profound sins are the sins of the heart. When we trade the glory of Christ for our own honor, when we trade the beauty and the glory of Jesus for our own self-exaltation, that is why we go to hell. And that is what bears all those other fruits in our lives. I have to see how wicked I am and take that sin to the cross and plead with him to forgive me. And then to trust. To trust what? That Jesus willingly died for my pride. He willingly sacrificed himself to take my hell off of me, my eternity of suffering off of me, and to put it on himself and to bear the weight of God's wrath against me. I have to see that and trust that that's true, that all of my sins are off of me and they're on him now. And he has died for those sins and his blood now cleanses me from all unrighteousness. I have to believe that that is true. And when we trust that, what happens inside of us? What do we see when that happens? We see the glory of Jesus. We see his glory. It's revealed to our hearts because no one loves like that. No one cares like that. No one has that kind of humility. He didn't regard equality with God the thing to be grasped. He emptied himself and became obedient to the point of death on a cross for me, for my sin, for my failure. And when I see his glory and his love for me, it's so much better, isn't it? You know this if you're a Christian. The glory of Christ is so much better than any glory you can get from people. It satisfies your heart and it is clean and pure and you know the beauty and the loveliness of Jesus and you say, you know what? I have him. I don't need anything else. Everything else is a zero. People's opinions don't matter because I have Christ. His opinion of me is good and if his opinion of me is good, everyone else's doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. In fact, just the opposite. I want other people to see his beauty. And I look for the lowly and I say, are you seeing the glory of Christ? Come close to the church. You see it here. Join with the people of God so that you can see his glory. And our hearts are filled up in worship toward Christ and we live like this. We think like this. And it's not something we manufactured it's not because we've decided to be more humble or it's not because we've decided to make other lowly people our projects. It's because Christ has so filled us with his glory that we think like him. And that is the byproduct of communion and worship with Christ. This is the only path out of self-aggrandizement. It's, it's the only way out. But praise the Lord, it's a perfect way out. It's always there for us. We can always commune with Christ. We can always taste his glory and enjoy it. We can always see his beauty and worship him 
And as we do that, his mind is formed in us and we follow his example. So the cross of Christ is our answer. And that's why this morning we're coming to the cross of Christ in communion, aren't we? We're going to take communion this morning. What is communion? Communion is literally in your heart walking to the cross and standing in front of it and saying, that's my sin. That's my sin. His broken body is because of me. I'm the unrighteous one who needs that kind of suffering to be paid for. His blood being shed is because of my sin. I need his blood to be shed for my sins. I need to be cleansed. That's what communion is. We literally walk up to the cross and proclaim his death for us. We proclaim it. This is, this is what I needed. This is how bad I am. And this is how perfect Christ is. And this is the forgiveness that I have. And when we do that, we acknowledge that he's died for us. All of our sins of pride, all of our self-exaltation, all of our fear of man, all of it paid in full once and for all at the cross. And there at the presence of Christ, there is no condemnation for us, is there? He doesn't look down at us and frown. He doesn't judge us anymore because all of our judgment is off of us. In fact, just the opposite. He accepts us joyfully. And so we proclaim again and again and again that he is our savior and that we have received his righteousness in full. And that's why only Christians should take communion. <laughs> only true Christians should take communion. If you're here and you're not a Christian, even if you've gone to church your entire life, you've been at church your entire life, and what I'm talking about, about tasting and seeing the beauty and the glory of Christ, if it's, that's meaningless to you, don't take communion. Because you're not saved, you're just covering that over with falsehood. You've never actually come to the cross in your heart, and so coming to broken soda crackers and grape juice does nothing for you. It's meaningless. If you're here and you're not a Christian, listen, come to the cross this morning. Come to the broken body of Christ and the shed blood of Christ. Maybe you've lived your life for your honor and for your fame and for your glory and for your self-exaltation and not for his. And if that's true of you, you need Jesus. You need Jesus. But Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners like you. So if you've never come to Christ truly, listen, don't take communion. Come to Christ from the heart. Repent and be saved. But if you are here and you're a Christian, listen. Sermons on humility are always the hardest. Because what's our tendency? What's in our hearts usually? We usually think of ourselves as relatively humble, don't we? <laughs> and what we start to do is we start to think of other people. Sometimes our spouse, sometimes our kids, sometimes somebody else that we know. And we begin to think to ourselves, it's so good that they're here to hear this sermon on humility. Don't we? It's so good that they're here to listen to this sermon on Christian maturity because certainly they can grow. And what are we doing? We're proving what? That of all the people in the room, we're the proudest. Of all the people in the room, I have the biggest problem the moment that I think I don't. And so if you're a Christian, listen, 
consider this. Consider this. Ask the Lord to show you places where you're proud, where you think of yourself as more important than other people, where, where, you, where you are haughty in mind, where you are considering your spiritual credentials in the church, where, you start, where you've started to allow those things to creep into your heart, where you're nervous to associate with the lowly because they're different than you. Think of those times. Confess them to Christ for the sin that they are, that you've traded his glory for your own. And when it comes to kids, parents, please be careful with your kids. Be careful with them. Take note of them and shepherd them. If they're not true believers, if you're not 100% sure that they know Christ as their Savior, don't let them take communion. Encourage them to consider those things and to think through it. Speak to them about the realities of what we're actually doing in communion on the drive home. Pay careful attention over them because they are your responsibility. So this morning, I just want to ask you to consider these things. Are there any ways that you're not thinking rightly? If there are, come to Christ. Remind yourself of what he's done for you. And let him fix you from the inside out. Let his glory fill your heart so that you think rightly, not only of yourself, but of everyone else. And do it through communion. Do it by coming to the cross this morning. Truly coming to the cross this morning in communion. So what will happen is that the men will come forward and the band's going to come up as I pray. And we'd ask you to just stand and come forward and collect the elements. Both the elements are together, and so keep them with you. Don't take them until we all take them together, all right? Let me pray, and we'll invite the men forward. Father in heaven, Lord, we confess our sins. Lord, we so often can think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. And Lord, we can so often think of others as less. Lord, even though we would never verbalize those things and we do our very best to not, Lord, it's so easy for us to begin the comparison games when it comes to our Christian walk. And Lord, we confess this to you, Lord. Though we're not proud of it, Lord, we confess how deeply evil it is in your sight. Lord, that we are truly trading your glory in the church among your people for our own glory. Lord, that we've sought to make idols of ourselves and of our own honor in our hearts. Lord, how wicked, Lord, just as wicked as the children of Israel, the base of Mount Sinai, Lord, we have golden calves of ourselves. And yet, Lord, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He suffered and died so that we would no longer have that mind in us, Lord, so that we would consider others as more important than ourselves. Lord, that we would think of everyone with equality, that we would associate with the lowly and not be haughty in mind. So Lord, I pray that you would do this in our hearts this morning. Lord, as we take communion, as we come to the cross, Lord, remind us of the depth of our sin. Lord, remind us of how much it took to forgive sinners like us. Lord, open our eyes to see our wickedness in Christ's profound righteousness. Lord, as we see these things, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to believe the gospel, to believe these truths and to walk by faith in them. 
And Lord, that that would produce in us a taste of the glory of your love for us. Lord, that we would see that Jesus died for our sins once and for all, the just for the unjust. Lord, that we would rejoice in that. Lord, that we would taste his glory and that his mind would be formed in us. Lord, we pray these things so that we would change for his glory alone. Lord, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.